please pray with me. Grant, O Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and you are our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. It won't surprise those of you who know me that I was a big reader growing up. Okay, fine. I, I didn't just read books, I used to reread quite a bit. And one of the books that I read several times was God's Smuggler by Brother Andrew, which I brought for show and tell. Uh, this is an autobiographical account of his work sneaking Bibles across the Iron Curtain during the communist period and supporting underground Christians in communist Eastern European countries. But early on in the book, before he gets to that part of the story, he tells about attending a Bible school in Scotland. And part of the program in this Bible school was sending the students out in teams to travel around the country and hold evangelistic meetings. But there was a twist. The only money they were allowed to take on the trip was a single one pound note per person. This is a four week trip. They have to pay all their own expenses, travel, room, board, costs for putting on meetings, rentals, for space. And just to make it more fun, they aren't supposed to take up collections, they aren't supposed to ask for money. And at the end of the trip, they have to give back the one pound note. Brother Andrew writes that again and again, their needs were met just in time. Maybe one of the young men would get a letter from his parents with a little money, or a church they had visited the previous week would send along a note. I know you don't need money or you would have mentioned it, but God just wouldn't let me get to sleep tonight until I had put this in an envelope for you. Sometimes the gifts were food. He talks about one town in the Highlands where they were given 600 eggs. But whether it was money or produce, he writes, we stuck fast to two rules. We never mentioned a need aloud, and we gave away a tithe of whatever came to us as soon as we got it, within 24 hours if possible. Another team that was traveling at the same time also set aside tithe money, but they held on to it in case they ran into an emergency. And he says, of course they had emergencies. So did we every day. But they ended their month owing money to hotels, lecture halls, and markets all over Scotland, whereas Brother Andrew's team came back with almost 10 pounds left over to send to missionary work overseas. It's an incredible story about Christian trust and about God's ability to respond. And that becomes a driving theme throughout the book. But I found myself thinking again about this story when I read this morning's gospel reading in Mark 6, where Jesus calls his disciples to do essentially the same thing. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, not even a one pound note, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And the disciples do this, and God works powerfully through them. Again, it's a profound scriptural teaching about Christian trust. And I don't know about you, but if you're like me, you find these stories compelling and a little anxious-making. Because I want to have faith like that. I love these crazy stories. But in real life, in my much more ordinary circumstances, I struggle with trust in God. Now, y'all, if, if anybody should trust God by this point, I am that person. 
just in the last few months, God has shown himself so faithful over and over and over again. At the very last minute, making it possible for me to stay here in Waco at Christ Church for this coming year. Several weeks ago, preserving me through a serious car wreck. Some of y'all have heard this story. It's kind of an amazing story. My car is spinning sideways. It actually goes on its side temporarily before coming upright again. But mid-crash, like I'm flying sideways, there's literally holy water splashing across the interior of the cabin of the car and hitting me in the face. I'm not making this up. Suffice it to say, God's presence has been unusually clear in my life lately. And yet, this last Monday morning, I found myself feeling anxious about trying to sort out my housing situation for the fall. And just ever so gently, the Lord brought my mind back to this gospel reading. And I thought, dang it, I just got busted by my own sermon. I haven't even written it yet. I'm thinking about trust, but I'm not actually doing it. You know, when, you, when you're thinking about the scriptures and then you get distracted and you realize you're contradicting the scriptures, maybe that doesn't happen to you. It happened to me this week. It seems to me that we get anxious about trust, or I do, because we're afraid of being left empty. After all, Jesus' command to his disciples here is a kind of emptying. Take the money out of your belt. Remove the bread from your bag. Actually take the bag off your back and leave it behind. Strip off that second tunic that you were hoping would keep you warm when the nights get cold. Relinquish your sources of support, the assurance that you're going to be okay. And yes, in the ancient world, hospitality is a high value. They can expect someone will probably take them in. But do you think any of the disciples had at least a moment of worry? Lord, you're sending us out empty. But as I thought about these readings more, it started to dawn on me that the scriptural portrait of trust is not about being emptied out. There is an emptying, but that's not ultimately the point. The point ultimately is about being filled up. And what clued me into this was our reading from Ephesians, which this opening chapter of Ephesians is a kind of rhetorical dance of delight around the center of our union with Jesus Christ. We have this phrase that's repeated about a dozen times. In Christ, in him, everything good, everything beautiful, everything true about us that matters is ours because we're his, because we're in Christ Jesus. But this chapter is also, I started to realize, a portrait of profound abundance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, St. Paul writes who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, all of them. In him, we're chosen, we're adopted, we're beloved, we're redeemed, we're brought bought back, we're forgiven. God has lavished the riches of his grace on us, Paul writes. In him, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and there's an even greater inheritance awaiting us. And the Apostles' Prayer at the end of the chapter culminates with this astounding climax. Listen to this. He, the Father, put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness 
of him who fills all in all. Now, number one, that's an incredible statement to make about the church and the centrality of the church and God's plan for our salvation. But also, I can't imagine what the inspired apostle could possibly say that would offer a more complete assurance of the plenitude and abundance and fullness that God is and has for those who love him. Giving Jesus as head over all things to the church. Here you go. The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Sit with that for a minute. And I think our gospel reading points in the same direction. Yes, there's an emptying here, but the disciples are being emptied so that they can be filled. I want to suggest that we look at Mark's gospel again, in this text, as a foreshadowing of the church. And her participation, her union, our participation and union in the abundant life of the risen Lord. It opens as Jesus called the twelve, and he begins to send them out two by two. Now notice they don't just go. They're sent. They're under obedience. You all know this. I've said this before. It's dangerously easy for us to dream up what we think God must want us to do and then get upset if God doesn't show up and support our plan. But Lord, I was doing this for you. He says, oh, neat. Whose idea was that? This isn't their idea. They're doing God's work. Notice also that they don't go alone. We think of trust as a deeply individual thing. But biblically, trust is a joint project. The Lord's body, where his fullness is made known, is the church. This is where trust happens. But here's the point. They aren't just doing what Jesus says when he sends them out. They're enacting and participating in who Jesus is. Because the one who sends them out has himself been sent by the Father and has come to do what the Father has given him to do. The one who sends them two by two doesn't act alone, but in perfect union with the Father and the Holy Spirit. When they're commissioned here, they aren't just entering into divine work, they're revealing and participating in divine life. It's easy to focus on what Jesus tells them not to bring, which is a little shocking. But in Mark's version, he particularly points out two things that Jesus does instruct them to bring. A staff and sandals on their feet. And this may be a hint back at Exodus 12, verse 11, where the people of Israel are receiving Passover instructions as they're about to leave Egypt for the promised land. And God says, make sure you have your staff ready in your hand that your feet are shod or you're ready to go. And so when Jesus says, don't take bread with you, there may be a reminder here of what also happens in the Exodus. When God sends manna, he provides food for his people in the wilderness as they travel on their pilgrimage. The whole story of the Exodus and this wilderness journey that follows is a story of God's provision and protection and presence with his chosen people. Or in other words, these emptying out instructions are about relationship. They're about dwelling with God or God dwelling with us. 
There's an amazing story in the sayings of the Desert Fathers told by a monk named Dulas. He's the disciple of an older monk named Vasarion. And he says, one day we were walking beside the sea. I was thirsty. And I said to Abba Basarion, Father, I am very thirsty. He said a prayer and said to me, drink some of the seawater. The water proved sweet when I drank some. I even poured some into a leather bottle for fear of being thirsty later on. Seeing this, the old man asked me why I was taking some. I said to him, forgive me, it is for fear of being thirsty later on. Then the old man said, God is here. God is everywhere. I'm like Dulles. I see God do something amazing. I think, wow, that's amazing. God really came through for me. But what if I get thirsty later on, though? A miracle is literally happening right now, and how does he respond? I should probably fill up a bottle just in case. Jesus says, don't take bread. Don't take a bag to carry extra bread if someone gives you some. Don't take money to buy bread just in case you run into an emergency. Of course there's going to be an emergency. There are always emergencies. But the God who's faithful today isn't going to abandon you tomorrow. The God who's present here isn't going to be absent where he sends you next. God is here. God is everywhere. The disciples bear God's presence with them when they go. That's the point of the shaking the dust off the feet thing. Because those who reject them are rejecting Christ himself. And they're handing them over to God for judgment. The disciples are sent out to bear divine presence. And when people welcome them, he says, stay with them until you leave for the next town. Because God is coming to make his dwelling in the midst of his people. And they don't just bear divine presence, of course, they also bear divine power. Jesus gives them authority to cast out demons, to anoint and heal. I found myself wondering as I read this if that staff is also a reminder of the staff that Moses carries, that God tells him to bring, through which God will work his mighty works. Again, they're being emptied in order to be filled with the fullness of God, not just so they can be filled up, so they can overflow for blessing and transformation of the people he sends them to. As an aside, this is why we practice fasting as Christians, right? This is what the discipline of fasting is about. It's a way of cultivating holy emptiness, not because being empty is good, but to make room for God to fill us. This is why Christians historically have fasted before receiving Holy Eucharist. It's a way of embodying the truth that man does not live by bread alone. We need bread and grace. We need wine and divine life. We need to make space for God to fill us up. And that's the same spiritual principle for the whole Christian life. When we surrender to fear, when we're so busy filling our water bottles just in case an emergency we can't stop to wonder at the miracle. And we can't make space for what God might want to do next. When we cling so tightly to our own plans and provisions and alternative sources of security, 
the danger is that we're protecting ourselves from the adventure of life with God. We shut out the fullness of the lavish riches of his grace he wants to bestow, and not just on us, but through us to others. Sometimes, I think we imagine trust as a kind of one-off thing. But it's not. Trust is a way of life. It's the Christian way of life. Because trust is about opening ourselves for God's work. Trust makes way for fullness. Okay, so here's the question. How might our loving Lord be asking you and asking me to open ourselves to him in trust today? To empty our belts and our bags and our bread supply so that like the disciples, we can become participants in his divine work and partakers in his divine life and bearers of his divine presence, and instruments of his divine power. How can we turn to the one who lavishes the riches of his grace upon us, who shows us the mysteries of his will, who causes the Holy Spirit to abide in us and to seal us, who has promised us an inheritance? How is Jesus inviting us today to become what we truly are? the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.